You're listening to A Catholic Bible Study on the Gospel of Matthew with Scripture scholars Dr. Tim Gray and Dr. Michael Barber. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to Form Now. I'm Tim Gray, president of the Augustan Institute, and joining me is Dr. Michael Barber, who is a professor of Scripture here at the Augustan Institute, and we're going to continue our Bible study into the Gospel of Matthew. So whether you've been with us the whole time or you want to just jump in, you're welcome. Grab your Bible. We are going to pick up in Matthew chapter 14, and we've covered Jesus feeding a multitude, and now we're going to look at what happens afterwards. And so we're in Matthew 14, verse 22, and just to give you the setting, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. Now that's rather awkward, though. You think about it, Jesus tells Peter and the disciples, all right, get in the boat, go to the other side, I'll catch up. And they're like, wait a minute, we only have one boat. (laughs) How are you going to catch up? And Jesus is thinking, I've got a shortcut, don't worry. (laughs) And so, you know, they head out, and I love, and then after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountains to, by himself to pray. Now, two things happen here. One is, this is just an enormous success. As we talked about last time, uh, Jesus did this miracle at the hands of the apostles. So they're thinking, they're, that's a pretty exciting moment, right? Feeding this incredible multitude of 5,000 men, plus, not counting women and children, and it the, the, the loaves and the fish, this miracle happens, in a sense, at their hands. And, you know, John comes back. He's like, do you see how many people I fed? And Peter's like, no, I fed a lot more. There must have been a thousand on my hill side of the slope, right? And so they're all enthusiastic, and, and the people are loving them, right? Because they just fed them. And so the, 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 the disciples right now couldn't, be, uh, couldn't have a higher popularity with the crowd, right? Their Facebook likes are going way up. So what does Jesus do? He gets rid of the disciples before he dismisses the crowds. Why does he do that? Now, my own read on that is big headitis. It's a virus that he's worried about the disciples getting. Getting big headitis, their pride of being part of the success. And so Jesus sends them out, uh, out in that boat ahead. And he's going to give them a little lesson in humility with, with some things out there in the boat. But then he goes up and he gives thanks in prayer, in, in prayer to the Father. He goes up by himself. So, and this is one of the things I want to ask. When you experience success and blessing, is your first response to go in solitude and go to the Father, your Father, and pray to Him in thanksgiving? If we do not pray to the Father with deep gratitude immediately, then what happens is we take the success as our own. And that builds our pride. And so Jesus models for us, I think, Michael, how to deal with success. No question about it. He's already told us in the Sermon on the Mount how to pray. Yeah. Go off by yourself. Go in your room and shut the door. And so here there are no rooms for him to enter, but he does the equivalent of that. He models for us his own teaching in going off by himself to pray. And just to drill down a little bit more into the point that you're, you're making here, when you are trying to bring about the conversion of the masses, when you're trying to convince people, all right, the Messiah is here, we've got the message, we've got the gospel, it would seem like foolishness 
to disengage at this very point. I mean, can you imagine a politician, you know, being swarmed after performing an amazing feat and then saying, all right, I'm out of here. You know, you'd want to really soak it up, right? Don't, don't you really want to establish your reputation and establish the reputation? No, you, you, Jesus doesn't do that because he doesn't trust in himself. And he's trying to teach the disciples, I think, as well, not to trust in those kinds of earthly ways of manipulating people. No, well, yeah, just trust it, in the Lord. And I love how Jesus models this. All good gifts come from God the Father. That's right. And uh, he, he brings everything back to his source, the That's ultimate right. source, and that is our Father in heaven. And it's a really beautiful thing. Now, as he's praying by himself, evening comes, and you know he's there alone in the evening. But the boat, by this time, in verse 24, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So one of the things about the Sea of Galilee is that it's, it's, it's almost like a giant fishbowl in terms of it's surrounded by mountains. Mm -hmm. And when the wind, and I've been on the sea numerous times, but I remember one particular time, the wind kept shifting when we were in a boat out on the sea. And the waves are getting bigger and bigger. And it's very hard to maneuver, especially if you're dealing with a sailboat, not with a powered engine, mm -hmm. right? And the wind keeps shifting. So you're thinking, well, how can, you know, how can they be so far from land? How could Peter lose control of the boat? Well, these winds can come out of the blue, push you in a direction. You, you change the mast, you work on that, and then, and then you start working on it. And then the wind sh shifts again on you. And it can be very frustrating. But you can see how that can happen on the Sea of Galilee. And Peter's having a rough time of it. And, and can we talk a little bit yeah. about the boat here? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we were out in Israel together. And I got to see in person something that I'd read about mm -hmm. and seen in books. And that is they've actually discovered an ancient fisherman's boat, yeah, right? Yeah. And yep. uh, we've got an image we can share with the people. But can you say yeah. a few things about it? I know you've, yeah, you've it's, spent it's, a lot of time there. It's an extraordinary that. thing. In the, in the 1980s, there was a year of great drought for Israel and the Sea of Galilee. And the water level dropped to a, a level it hadn't dropped in, in recent memory, right? And two of the fishermen and, and a, a Jewish kibbutz, these two Jewish fishermen, who lived right on the Sea of Galilee, and they were part of this kibbutz that's in Naf Gennesor, and uh, right on the kind of north, uh, northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee. They're walking along, one of them, and uh, I think his name is Simon, and he, he found a, uh, a piece of wood sticking out and a nail. And so then he, he, he saw that, and he, he went down, and said, oh, this piece of wood kept going, and it kept going. And he realized it was something, he starts digging, and sure enough, it's a large piece of wood that's connected and it keeps going further into the mud. So he got all excited, showed his brother, and then they went to the kibbutzim that they belonged to and they started to excavate. And, and they then figured that they had some ancient relics. So they called the archaeologists. And so the archaeologists came out and they carbon dated the wood and it came out to the first century. And what's really, there's so many amazing things about this, but one of the things I love is that after the, you know, they, they dug it out, and then the water started coming back, so the water was rising. So they had to put sandbags up around this thing, and then they had to move it, but it, you know, it was waterlogged, and moving it would make it fall apart, so how are they gonna do this? And so it was an engineering challenge, and they ended up putting, surrounded it by foam all around. They dug out channels underneath and around it, and they got this foam, and so it was all encased in foam, and then they, they, they uh, floated it out on the sea for the first time in 2,000 years. 
and then they were able to bring it into a, a place where they could treat it and, and protect the wood. And it's really quite amazing. But one of the things, Michael, that's really fascinating is that they found 12 different kinds of wood, tree wood, that was used for this uh, boat, which I just thought was great for the 12 apostles. I mean, it's just, it's just you know, it's what, what a great symbolism. And, but the engineering, because different wood has different characteristics and hardness and subtle softness. And they had a different one for the keel, a very hard, long wood for the keel, but a different kind of tree that they used for the rudder and different kind of wood for different parts of the tree. So it was really an engineering feat of practical carpentry, wow. uh, which is really amazing. So yeah, so we, when you go to Israel, and right now we can't go, unfortunately, uh, but we look forward to leading pilgrimages there again. One of the things we love to do at the Augustine Institute, all of our faculty, Michael's been with me. We've done pilgrimages together. Uh, Dr. Mark Gishak, uh, Dr. Ben Akers, uh, Dr. John Seahorn. We love to lead pilgrimages, and we're, we're looking forward to doing that again once uh, we're past COVID. But so, would it, you say that this that this boat gives us a sense of what's going on in the story in a certain sense? Yeah, right? well, we're going to see in this boat. Petr Peter is going to be petrified. Of, <laughs> very good. <laughs> of what's going to happen yeah, next. That's very good. All right. <laughs> So, so they're in the boat, and there are these wind and the waves against them. And we read, and in the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I do not be afraid. Now, let's just push pause there because there are a few things I want to highlight. First off, that it is the fourth watch of the night seems significant. Jesus comes on the sea in the fourth part of the night. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been identified as the Son of Man. And as you know, in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man makes his appearance after the fourth beast has come in this vision that involves the sea. And so it may very well be that there's a subtle allusion here to Jesus as the Son of Man. Of course, the disciples calling out, it is a ghost, shows us uh, a bit about them. They don't recognize Jesus, for one thing. Of course, that's understandable. You don't expect to find your rabbi walking out on the, on the water in the middle of the night. But what's remarkable is, uh, what I'd like to highlight is, then Jesus says, it is I. And that is a mm. fascinating line because in the Greek of that, it's literally ego, a me. And what's fascinating about that is if you go back to the book of Exodus, you have the wonderful story of the burning bush where the Lord appears to Moses. Yeah, it's found in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses asks the Lord. And God says to Moses, I am, ego eimi, who I am. And so there we have the divine name, translated in the Greek, into the very same words Jesus uses here. Now, of course, you could just say ego eimi, that just means it's me. You could, it could just mean that. But the fact that he's walking on the water be might be a clue. That might be a clue. That there's more going on here <laughs> than that. And of course, when Jesus says, do not be afraid then, well, there, that, that is such a comforting scene. 
don't worry, right? Jesus is saying, uh, on the one hand, it's me. I'm, it, I'm not a ghost, but at the same time, I am the Lord, and I can take control of this situation. You know, I, I just want to read a passage from Psalm 107, Michael, because it just... Psalm 107, it, yeah, that's a good one. Verse 23, yep. it, it, it just, it's, just seems so fitting for what's going on. Mm-hmm. And this is a psalm about thanksgiving and deliverance and the Lord delivering his people. And so in verse uh, uh, 23, it says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, and they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. I love that imagery of the rocking with the waves. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, and, they, they, uh, and their courage melted away uh, in their evil plight, which is exactly what happens to the disciples. And they indeed staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. It's a pretty good description of them when they are panicking and they see Jesus as, no a, kidding. Uh, yeah. as a ghost. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, and he made the storm to be still. Uh, beautiful, beautiful, Very powerful. Psalm. Very powerful. And so, of course, uh, in... The story, he doesn't call he doesn't call the storm immediately because we read next, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So ask me to do something that is humanly impossible. Now I gotta just tell you, I, I once saw a, a news story a few years ago. They discovered ice out on the Sea of Galilee. And some rationalist, somebody who doesn't believe in miracles, said, well, this explains the story of Peter walking on the sea. See, what happened is Jesus walking on the water and Peter on. What happened was Jesus was standing on a floating piece of ice. And then that floating piece of ice just, you know, happened to drift over to where the disciples were on a boat. And then Peter asked Jesus, let me come out to you. And then right at that moment, another floating piece of ice just happened to <laughs> right under Peter's feet, you know. And then after that, Peter's piece of ice moved. So he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, this is really hard to explain if you're a rationalist, right? <laughs> Uh, but I, when, yeah. I think they have more and, faith in science well, than they, I, many people I know have faith in God. <laughs> Peter said, I used to know you. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> All right. And when, he, and when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Mm-hmm. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Something. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now, you mentioned Psalm 107. I've got to mention here Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, we read, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the floods sweep over me. Mm. That seems to, you know, fit the context here. And in fact, there are many passages where the person who's in distress calls out to God and speaks of how they're being overwhelmed by waters. Of course, why Peter sinks is he doesn't have faith in the sense that he doesn't trust in the Lord. And there's a really interesting dichotomy set up here between fear 
on the one hand yeah. and, and faith, faith on the, the other. other. We did an entire formed episode yeah. on that. So No, that's a, it's a great point. And, you know, it, it's in Job where Job says that the Lord identifies himself as he who walks that's upon right. the waves that's right. yeah. of the sea. And so, again, that's another clue that, that Jesus is Lord. And the fact that Job has that confession that, you know, who, who is like God who can walk upon the, the waves of the sea? And Jesus is doing that. And then they end here with a confession that truly you are the son of God. Uh, that's another. And they worship him. Yeah. Now, the word that's used there in the Greek, proskuneo, can be used for kings. It can be used for homage. homage yep. But in Matthew's gospel, we yeah. already have the story of where Satan asks Jesus, worship me. Yep, and exactly. Jesus doesn't do that. That mm -hmm. is reserved for, for God. God alone. So. So, although broadly speaking, proskuneo can have different connotations, mm -hmm. within the Gospel of Matthew, it is extremely significant mm -hmm. that the one who's identified as Emmanuel, God with us, is the recipient of worship. I just want to highlight that phrase where Jesus says, Oh, oh you of little faith. Mm. Um, I like to always translate that, Oh, man of dinky faith. <laughs> but, uh, you know, four times in the Gospel of Matthew we get that phrase. And the first time is in Matthew chapter 6, during the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, not to be worried about what they're going to eat and drink. The second time is in Matthew 8, and it's a storm at sea. This is the third time. And again, we're at the sea. Mm -hmm. And we get, you know, O man of little faith. In chapter 8, it was O men of little faith with a storm at sea. And so this, the, the middle two relate to each other. They parallel. And the first one, which is not being worried about what they're going to eat or drink, We'll see that paralleled here in a little bit, the fourth time uh, that we get that phrase, O men of little faith. So it's a, just a, a, you want to follow as you're reading the word of God. It doesn't matter what book of the Bible, look and be attentive to repetition. Mm -hmm. And that's why it takes reading and rereading. You're like, oh, but I can't read the Bible like Dr. Barber. I'm not as smart or as, you know, don't have the scholarship. Look, it's not about smarts. It's really about how often you read the word of God. Read the Gospel of Matthew over and over and over again, and it'll be like your favorite hiking trail or your favorite walk. You know, maybe you, you, you get to see the, the same things over and over again, and they become familiar. And then all of a sudden you start noticing more and more detail. And, and, and that's really what it takes to read the Word of God well is repetition, an eye for detail, and then just reading and rereading carefully. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's go to the next. You ready to go to the next Absolutely. story, Michael? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, they cross to the other side, and you know, when you're crossing the Sea of Galilee, this crossing back and forth, a lot of people I always used to think, well, they cross to the other side. So if they're on the north side, they must be on the south side, and if they're on the east side, they must be now on the west side, and and that's what I took as a naive and simple reader of the text. But when I went and spent time, and I spent a summer in Israel studying Hebrew. And I spent some time up in the Sea of Galilee. I was one time walking along uh, the Jordan River where it goes into the Sea of Galilee at Bethsaida. And it struck me that, of course, that Jordan River in Bethsaida was the boundary marker. And it, it, they had signs up for uh, that were, you know, um, that used to be a minefield there in 1967. Uh, it was the land of Syria. Mm -hmm. And then Israel took it in the, the Six-Day War. But then I was reminded, oh, well, this used to be a boundary marker, not just in 1967 between Syria and Israel, but it used to be a boundary marker between Herod Jr., Herod Antipater, and Philip, his brother. There are two territories. And then I realized that going to the other side, 
meant going to the other side of jurisdiction. So it could be just a mile or two miles. You know, if you went from Capernaum to Bethsaida, you were going to the other side as they talked about it. Because for them, everybody in the first century, the other side was the jurisdiction of Philip. Or if you're in Philip's jurisdiction, the other side was Herod's jurisdiction. It wasn't about going from the top north of the sea all the way to the bottom south of the sea. And that makes much more sense once you understand that. Right, because Jesus is performing these miracles and people are making it seems, a fuss over him. You can imagine this creating a little bit of a, a stir, right? Mm-hmm. I'm being, I'm downplaying this, right? We're not talking about cities with hundreds of thousands of people in them. We're talking about cities that maybe had 10,000 people, maybe, in them, right? So when we read a story about Jesus feeding 5,000 people, not counting women and children, Jesus is just lighting this place on fire. And so you can you can pick this up in other places, especially in Luke, where it seems that you know, Herod is playing like a little bit of game of a cat, cat and mouse with Jesus. Where whenever Jesus comes out and does some great work, then he slips away over to the other side where, you know, Philip's territory is. And now he's worked a miracle on the one side. He goes back to the other side. It's really convenient that Peter's a fisherman. <laughs> it is. And it's perfect for Jesus because he can go back and forth between these two territories. Whenever Herod's getting close to capture him, he can slip into Philip's territory and vice versa. And so it really is providential how that works out. They didn't have cell phones back then. They couldn't 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 call each other, right? Yeah, keep track, yeah. So the last line here is that uh, wherever he goes in that region, they brought to him all who were sick and they implored that that, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. That that image reminds us of the healing of the Mm -hmm. hemorrhaging woman, right? And again, it's... Why do you think the, the fringe of his garment? Yeah, it's, that is such an important phrase there because, you know, the Greek word is uh, kraspidon. It's a, it's a reference to these, these fringes that Jews would wear on their garments. And the fact that Jesus has them shows us that he's a faithful Jew. And this is going to be really important going into chapter 15. Matthew wants to note, before we read about what's going to happen in the next chapter, that Jesus faithfully follows the directions of the Torah. So in Numbers and, and those, chapter those, 15. Those yeah, little tassels that they were, little tassels. Is a, was a reminder of the Torah. Right. The so Numbers of, 15. Yep. There's a great passage in Numbers 15 that uh, where the Lord says to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Blue is especially associated with the priests and the priest garments. Of course, Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. So many commentators on numbers think that there's some reference here. Israel is to remember what they're called to be, holy and a kingdom of priests. And it shall be on uh, the tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord. So when you look at the tassels, you remember the commandments of the Lord. So Jesus is a faithful Jew in the first century. That's really important to establish going into the next story. Mm -hmm. By the way, we have a picture up of uh, a woman touching Jesus's garment. And that's actually from the yes, Holy Land. Yeah, it's an original piece of art that's done in the, uh, in the Mary Magdalene Center uh, up on the Sea of Galilee. And it's, it's actually done in a, in a, with the, the stones that were part of the fishing dock at Magdala. And it's now made into a synagogue uh, and a chapel. Um, so it's ecumenical chapel. Uh, and you have that beautiful image of the hemorrhaging woman reaching down to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. 
and you see a little bit of light, the, the power mm -hmm. going out, because just as I perceived that power came forth from me. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a beautiful image it is for us to reflect on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what we want to do. We get it. Just think about it. all these people worked hard, like that woman, just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. But you and I are so blessed as Catholics that we get to do more than touch the hem of his garment. We get to touch Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity when we receive him in the Eucharist and in the sacraments. What a, what a great gift we have in our faith. And of course, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, where it talks about the sacraments, it in particular highlights the story and explains, quoting Leo the Great, Pope St. Leo the Great, that sacraments are powers that come forth from the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Of course, the body of Christ, not just his personal body, but the church. It was Joseph Ratzker who wanted to take that image uh, of the hemorrhaging woman from the catacombs and put it as the introduction to the sacraments mm -hmm. and liturgy, which is just really exquisite. It is. Well, let's look at the traditions and the commandments. Excellent. In chapter 15. So why don't you, why don't you cue us up with this? All right. This so we read in chapter 15, then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And here we see just how aware and how knowledgeable Matthew is of the first century Jewish context. Mm -hmm. There's a distinction or there's a difference here between the Mark narrative and the Matthean narrative. <coughs> In Mark, it simply says, it, it says, we, we read this line, and then Mark explains, for all the Jews washed their hands. Well, we actually know not all the Jews actually washed their hands. It doesn't seem like the Sadducees did that. The Pharisees did. Yeah. All right? And so Matthew's very precise in the way he's relating the story. And he answered, Jesus answered, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is to God, is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, this is a powerful statement because what Jesus is doing is turning the tables. They're saying he doesn't keep the commandments. But apparently there was a tradition. We're not really sure about all the details, but it looks like there was a tradition where people could dedicate their wealth to God. And so it's because a beautiful the, practice, yep, right? Because in the ancient world, there wasn't retirement funds and social right. security. So it was the job of children to support their parents in their old age and retirement. Right. So what some people would do is yeah, it was there was a practice where you could dedicate your estate to God. When I die, my estate is going to God. But apparently some people were using this as a way to not support their parents and not yeah. support those who were in need and say, oh, I've already dedicated my estate to God. I'm sorry, I can't use it to help my parents. Okay, and this is what Jesus is going to condemn. Notice he doesn't break any law in the Torah. It's not like he's going against what the law says. What he doesn't like is the way the Pharisees have used traditions to violate the word of God. Now, some people like to use this passage against Catholic tradition and say, oh, Catholics are terrible for having traditions because Jesus condemns traditions. He doesn't actually condemn tradition per se. And in fact, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 commends the Corinthians for holding fast to tradition. Yeah. It's the use of traditions in a way that abuses the word of God. I think that's yeah. an important distinction. And I think just to add to that, I, I think that, you know, it's the tradition of those elders 
Whereas when we talk about tradition as Catholics, it's a tradition that goes back to Jesus, mm -hmm. that, was, that was handed on by Jesus and out of reverence for Christ, we hold to what Jesus taught uh, in word or deed. And, That's right. And, and so there's a reverence that our traditions have the, Christ as the ultimate source of authority versus a particular rabbinic school of thought. <laughs> and so it's a, we would call that a small t tradition for the Pharisees, a large t tradition. And we have and, small and t Catholic, traditions. And, and I was just going to say, this right. is a good example. We do have plenty of small t traditions. So right. for example, uh, you know, we, 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 would, we would have a thing where uh, it used to only be boys that is, as altar boys, and now we have altar girls. So that wasn't a big t tradition. <laughs> Jesus didn't hand down the teaching. Here's you have altar boys. Mm -hmm. That wasn't that was a later development to have altar right. boys, and so that was a small t tradition. Versus if it had come from Jesus Himself and had been part of the two thousand year tradition, then it would be a big t tradition, and then, and then John Paul couldn't have changed and, and allowed altar girls. And so that's you know that's a prudential decision. You could say that was a good decision or a bad decision, but it's a prudential small t tradition. So right. important to make that distinction for people to understand the difference between a small T tradition and a big T tradition. And so Jesus then uh, relates a quotation from Isaiah, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And this is a major problem even for us today, right? That we can outwardly do things that are expressive of our faith while inwardly not doing what the Lord really asks us to do in a pinch, right? And, and really doing what is right and actually sort of going through the rites or the, the actions as Catholics that we have in a kind of ritualistic way that's or, not... You know, I, I think sometimes we can absolutize the relative, right? Oh, there's, that's true There's too. many relative goods, yeah. um, but well sometimes said. we absolutize them, right? And I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I love Latin. I, I can say some prayers in Latin, which I, I, from time to time I like to do. And I really enjoy... Uh, at times going to a, a Latin Mass. But there's some people who I know who say, well, if you pray in Latin, it's more effective. <laughs> and, uh, right. and, and that's absolutizing the relative. It, right. it, it really doesn't matter what language you pray to God. What matters is exactly the point of this story. It's your heart. It's right. about your heart and the disposition of your heart, not the vocabulary and the language that you're using. Well, you know, it's been... Uh, amazing that our time has gone by so fast. We're going to pick up this story next time, and I just want to thank everybody who is a supporter of our mission circle. Uh, we're so grateful for your support. It allows us to have this ministry. May the Lord bless and keep you. You can watch this Bible study in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.